Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here today with my brother, Christian Lewis. It's a Brother, Brother podcast. Today we're talking protest music. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now, in honor of various protests going on at the moment, let's talk about protest music. Brother, Brother, Brother podcast, which tonight is a Brother, Brother podcast. It's Wyndham with you and uh, Christian. And uh, tonight, in uh, in honor and deference to the Golden Globes last night and the coordinated protest uh, that was uh, organized to, um, you know, to speak out against uh, um, a lot of the horrific behavior that's gone on in Hollywood for a really long time, um, the entirety of the audience dressed in black. And uh, it brought to mind uh, what, you know, some other uh, favorable forms of protest and, and uh, certainly in a year that's been uh, ripe for it and, and ready uh, and with open arms would welcome any kind of protest, uh, be it uh, spoken word, uh, filmic, television, any kind of uh, pro, but today we're talking about protest music, uh, its history, and, and the way it goes runs through the uh, the vein of American uh, recording. So, um, you know, I uh, I thought we'd just take it from the top and and go you know back through the annals of American music and sort of chart the course that uh, American protest music has taken. How do you feel about that? Yeah, that sounds good to me. I mean, I definitely have some questions for you about the sort of 60s and our land is your land shit. Um, And uh, I I sort of pick it up in the Reagan era, I guess, um, appropriately around the time of my birth. Uh, But, you know, I have some familiarity with with um, I guess some of the, the protest music of the 70s. Um, but I mean, just to, just to sort of frame this, like, I mean, I, I, the, the big sort of inflection points or moments that I can think of that really did sort of inspire like this upswell of, of opposition, you know, and really sort of political songwriting. Um, I always think of like Vietnam as, as being one of those, uh, uh, sort of, you know, big sources of, of contention for, for artists. Um, like Reagan, uh, also was a, was another pretty big one. Um, and then, you know, you have... Uh, and, and those are obviously both tied to sort of like specific events, whether it's, you know, an inauguration or um, a, a four year term, you know, or or, a, a, you know, a, the the term of, a, of, of the war. Um, but then you also have sort of more uh, like sort of conceptual, um, you know, protest songs that are about um, social order or disorder. Or class, um, or, or or class, or you know, or feminism, as in the case of, of Riot Girl, um, which which we'll talk about a little bit. But um, you know, I guess one question I have for you is is sort of um, you know, how would you say a protest song might be different from 
um, you know, other forms of, of like political songwriting or, um, you know, just generally angry songs and rebellious songs. I think there's a difference between a, a, a you know, and this is the line of delineation that um, that we're going to draw on this one. But, you know, I, I think a protest song is a song that's protesting something. I mean, that sounds overly... Um, simplistic and, and well, thank you for that definition when you say it out loud. But no, but there's a there's a lot to be angry about, and there's a lot of angry songs in the world, and there's institutionalized by suicidal tendencies. I mean, there's there is something horrible about, um, you know, there's a million songs that have been written about how much being a teenager sucks, and how much being a young person sucks, and how much getting dumped sucks, and how much, you know, love sucks, and you know all those other various. Uh, things that you know can can spark a, a rather angry response. Um, when I talk, when I think about protest music, I want to make sure that it's the sort of you know that we define it rather cleanly as something that is in defiance to something, uh, generally speaking, an institution or. Um, or advocating something. I mean, in a way, yeah. like I mean, you can you can protest uh, uh, the the status quo by you know advocating um, some sort of social change. So I guess I see I see your point. I'm getting, the criteria that I'm picking up on is that it's it's sort of um, attached to some kind of social movement though, and it is sort of politically aware. Is that right? Yeah, I would say that would be a, a fairly clean definition. I mean, and certainly this is, won't be an exhaustive list because no. um, we'd be here for the next seven days. But I think that, um, you know, generally speaking, you know, the roots of American protest music lie in, um, you know, going all the way back to sort of Alan Lomax's field recordings, um, you know, people standing up against authority and authority. Um, a lot of times uh, it would be considered um, you know, uh, something that is oppressive and something that is unjust. Um, and, you know, that, that sort of, I think the sort of godfather of American protest music would be Woody Guthrie, who, you know, grew up uh, poor in the Midwest and, and became a sort of traveling troubadour. And, um, you know, I think kind of uh, documented a lot of the struggles of people around the country who were suffering post-oppression, um, Dust Bowl era, and um, you know, sort of made himself a career of challenging authority, whether it be um, you know advocating for workers' rights, you know, uh, for migrant workers' rights in California, or you know, pro union or anti, um, you know, capitalist, anti union, <laughs> anti fascist. Yeah, um, you know, there was you know the guy. If you, you know, if you could build it, he could protest it. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, not only did he, you know, so, you know, I mean, for lack of, you know, an enormous depth on the, on the subject, I mean, Woody Guthrie really stands out as the American, uh, folk hero when it comes to standing up to authority. Um, and, it, and probably it's earliest, uh, earliest. Well, it, it truly was the sort of the, the troubadour, you know, he, he, um, he, he was almost a political activist first, um, and you know it, it sounds like, and or at least equal parts political activist and yeah, musician. Yeah, I think he was. Absolutely, um, you know. but his songs were good. And um, absolutely, you know, and yeah. th- what happened was, you know, that that you know, it, it, it's funny to hear. Um, you know, I've been doing a lot of research lately on, uh, or doing a lot of reading lately on, you know, sort of uh, Watergate era politics and, and the sort of mirror that it holds up to today's world. And, you know, the, the, 
you know, the norms were, were so different and so much more um, traditional and conservative um, by, uh, by comparison to now. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the politeness and, and decorum of society hadn't really uh, eroded to the point uh, where it has now. And so, you know, the mere suggestion that you were challenging authority or challenging the boss or challenging, you know, uh, 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 something as in institutionally bold as, as the United States government is, you know, in the 1940s and 50s is A, extremely risky, and B, a first, really. Um, you know, I mean, it, certainly in song. And so, you know, that said, you know, Woody Guthrie is a real iconoclast. He's a real, you know, rule breaker and a wall, you know, broke down a lot of walls uh, that, that stood in between the artist and, um, you know, the sort of, uh, I guess, the societal compact of the day. This land is your land and this land is my land From the California to the New York Island From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters This land was made for you and me As I went a walk in that ribbon of highway I saw above me that endless skyway Saw below me that golden valley This land was made for you and me I roamed and rambled and I followed my footsteps To the sparkling sands of her diamond deserts all around me a voice was sounding this land was made for you and me and so this was this was later sort of absorbed um and you know the torch was was then carried i guess by uh, by the sort of folk artists of the, I'm thinking like Mighty Wind style, um, well, the, that, uh, the, the folkies of the sixties. I think that's that the Mighty, a Mighty Wind was sort of the, uh, uh, a sort of, uh, uh, send up of people who had kind of overstayed their welcome in the folk world and, and thought, you know, well beyond its, its, uh, past due date that it was, um, the still, you know, very, uh, vibrant and, and effective, but, you know, I mean, you take someone like Bob Dylan, who absolutely worshipped uh, Woody Guthrie, and, you know, he based his whole sort of career and his whole persona. I mean, he, you know, he sort of famously, uh, if you watch uh, Don't Look Back, he, um, he, you know, he's a guy who very much reinvented himself and very much reinvented himself as the, uh, and I'm going to, jump hopscotch back and forth but um you know joe strummer's another one who who sort of predicated his whole persona on this sort of worship of woody guthrie um you know and changed his name and and you know insisted people i believe at one point people call him woody um but you know bob dylan was uh very much an acolyte of woody guthrie's and and unabashedly so and um you know very uh, nakedly um, sort of taking it to the next step, which was the the folk movement in the 60s. 
which was, uh, you know, had a very strong cause attached to it, which was civil rights. Um, you get Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Phil Oaks, um, the whole New York folk scene, really, you know, Pete Seeger. Um, and, you know, it was different between uh, white and black artists because, you know, these, uh, you know, white folky artists in New York were able to make records and still be relatively outspoken about civil rights, whereas, you know, black artists, if they were to stay on a major record label or stay in a corporate environment where they were, you know, generating money and enthusiasm and hits, um, were kind of quieted and were really only able to express that when they were doing live performances and tours. And and even so, I mean, it's like the the yeah they they were speaking from a position of of privilege and um in a way that black artists just didn't have that opportunity. And this is sort of you know it's it's always interesting to um like last year when after Chuck Berry died the the sort of reexamination of his legacy and the fact that um you know he it 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 is I, I think from some people's perspectives um a, a little bit controversial that he. Uh, often sort of shied away from uh, from any discussion of um, you know the 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 place of of black musicians and black music. I mean, because from his perspective, he um, he, he was trying to do as well as he could in a world that he didn't write. You know, he he didn't set the rules for. Um, if right. that makes sense, and no, you that's, know, a, that's as, a huge piece of it. As discriminating as it was, um, you know, his his he recognized uh, that unfortunately. Um, uh, the the best way to get ahead was basically to to sort of keep your mouth shut about anything that that might court controversy that might well that might jeopardize your career, yeah. And um, you know, and he had uh, quite a career because of it. But then you know there was those sort of cracks in the in the foundation that were you know that allowed, and those came you know from both uh, you know both sides of of this um, you know artistic coin. It, it uh, you know you had people like Nina Simone and. Yeah. Um, James well, Brown. Mississippi, goddamn, is just like the is such a powerful sort of anthem for yeah. Um, you then, know, one of the look, early statements that really I think uh, you know that did that, that was um, so blunt and from uh, from a black musician. And then you you know I mean the, the sort of famous story of you know, the, the uh, sadly um, taken too soon Sam Cooke, where you know he did live at the Copa. Um, and, you know, that was a live album and it was, you know, had his beautiful, smooth voice and it's all very, you know, polished and everything. And then you hear Sam Cooke live from the Apollo and it's, you wouldn't know it was the same, you'd almost not know it was the same person. I mean, other than the beauty of the voice, um, you know, it's a completely different attitude and a completely different, um, you know, sort of uh, persona almost. Um but well, you know, it's but, almost like any good politician. You know, you know your audience, right? Well, and, yeah, but it, yeah, except that you know, I guess you you know, in on the flip side, usually in politics, you're trying to behave a certain way to you know create a certain perception. I guess that is true. That's what you're doing. But you know, in this case, you're you're sort of waiting to get out of the limelight to really let it rip, and that's you know more of. Um, you know, that's really, it's more the cathartic side of, of, of letting it go. But, you know, there was a lot of, you know, once that, once it started to tilt towards, um, you know, uh, a, a better uh, situation in the civil rights, once the progression started, you know, you started getting some really great uh, music, uh, protest music that was um, still fairly, you know, sort of coloring within the lines. Um you know, people like Curtis Mayfield and the Staples Singers and 
um, Aretha Franklin, but then you got some, you know, outliers like Gil Scott Heron, who just did not give a fuck, um, who was going to, you know, do what he did, um, Howard Jackson, um, you know, people who just were going to, uh, turn it up, uh, regardless of, of whether they're committing career suicide or not. And, um, you know, that, that all, and then that all came to a head where everybody was, you know, sort of, uh, where the, um, water seemed, uh, calm enough for people to, to jump in and, and really, uh, show what they had. And at that point you really got the, the heart of protest movement in the sixties. Southern trees. Barren, strange fruit Blood on the leaves And blood at the roots Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze trees pastoral scene of the gallant south them big bulging eyes and the twisted mouth Magnolia clean and fresh Then the sudden smell of burning flesh Here is a fruit the crows to pluck for the rain to gather for the wind to suck for the sun to rot
And so that that sort of, um, if I understand, you know, the timeline, uh, you know, naturally sort of made way for like while uh, certainly while the while the you know um, social sort of struggle for for civil rights continued. Um, there was, you know, toward the end of the 60s and, and then for the first half of the 70s, um, another rather large event that uh, occupied the attention of um, certainly many Americans. Um, and, you know, I, I, I want to ask in a minute about sort of how Britain was was um, thinking about uh, protest movement around the same time. But like for, you know, for Vietnam, um, you know, that really seemed to be the dominant, uh, the dominant subject of the day. And partly because it was, you know, so closely, um, uh, or it, it, you know, it, I guess, dovetailed or, or, um, connected very closely to, you know, some of the sort of more draconian measures and, um, uh, heavy-handed um, governance under folks like, you know, Nixon. Um, but absolutely. But also, if you think about the timeline, it's, um, you know, this is this is the evolution of folk and rhythm and blues and skiffle and all these things into rock music. So, you know, I mean, you, you, you think of these things as, as these sort of epic, um, you know, waves that happen, but you think about the, the time between, you know, Dylan blowing a harmonica for the first time on record. It's just like, I believe, 62. And, um, you know, Zeppelin's first album, which is 69, um, it's, uh, you know, that's a really good seven years. That's seven years uh, between, you know, those two um, those two things happen. So, you know, this, this revolution in sound is happening at the same time where, you know, only a few short years ago it was Beach Boys and... Um, the Weavers and, you know, uh, Kingston Trio topping the charts to, you know, some really heavy shit coming out. So this, the Vietnam War was the first time in the, the really, you know, sort of uh, amplified rock era that there was a single thing that everybody was, was sort of fighting against. So to, to put that in perspective, um, what, what you're saying is that the, the difference in time between Dylan blowing a harmonica and Led Zeppelin's first album blowing was rough, roughly the same as uh, the time between uh, LMFAO's party rock anthem and today. Correct. Okay. You got it. All right, cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, which is, I mean, it is interesting. It seems like a much less sort of, I mean, I you know, I, I think partly it's, it's because the the... I'm always interested in this sort of compressed timeline in the fifties and sixties, partly because rock was so young. Um, you know, like there, there were these massive leaps and bounds that were being taken because frankly, there was a lot of unexplored territory. Yeah, it was, I mean, evolution was fast and furious. Yeah. And add to that the technological changes that were taking place in terms of, you know, recording and, and actual, uh, you know, things like guitar. I mean, preamps for for uh, guitar effects and that sort of thing. Well, I always um, like to, I, my favorite thing, and I, I borrowed this from somebody else, I can't attribute it because I can't remember who said it to me first, but, you know, if the Beatles had split up today, they would have formed in 2011. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, which is always like a frightening, uh, frightening thought. Yeah. Get to work. I mean, yeah. Yeah, well, and then the other—it's actually interestingly. I mean, I think the other, um, the other sort of industry uh, convention that that you know um, contributed to that was just the way that that uh, that album deals worked, you know, um, and that people were basically on the hook for for so much 
uh, new content or new material um, that they would just crank these things out incredibly quickly because you know you you want to get on to the next deal. You're not getting paid until until that time comes. Yeah, so, there was no Chinese democracy in 1968. Certainly. Yes, um, but I mean you, so, you know you you have the sort of and also you know so Vietnam gave this sort of. Uh, I mean, the civil rights movement certainly uh, was the first uh, target, but Vietnam really gave a, a target to everybody. I mean, this, you had country greats like Johnny Cash, you had uh, you know folk singer-songwriters like uh, you know people like John Prine, or um, you know you had, uh, you had CCR, who was a hit-making machine at that point, a rock and roll band. Um, you know, doing Fortunate Son, there was everybody. Uh, not everybody. I mean, certainly there were lots of bands that were apolitical, but yet anybody who had something to say had a had a uh, a very bold and singular target that they could shoot at, which was um, American intervention in Vietnam. And you know, here's what we think about it. So a lot of great rock came out of that, and you know, um, you know, sort of turning from the '60s into the '70s. And I think a lot of people will you know sort of argue that you know the '60s ended in the early 70s rather than, you know, I mean, when you think about 60s, you don't think about 1962. You think about 1968, you know, the Chicago Democratic National Convention and protests and and hippies and blah, blah, blah. Um, But, you know, sort of capped off in 1970 uh, when, um, you know, four kids, four students are shot by a National Guardsman at the Kent State campus and Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and I will put the emphasis strongly on Young, um, wrote and uh, put out uh, Ohio within a, a very tight time frame, uh, got on the radio within weeks of, of this actually occurring and having been written and, and then recorded and, and put out. And it, it does stand out as sort of, you know, the sort of quintessential protest song in American rock because of the specificity of it. Um, the fact that Neil Young wrote Nixon's name into the song was extremely controversial at the time. Um, David Crosby couldn't believe he did it. Uh, it was, you know, it sort of broke a lot, broke down a lot of the last barriers of what you could and couldn't say in a song because, to be honest with you, you were sort of indemnified by the grotesquery of the event that uh, allowed you to to come back just as hard um, in spirit uh, against what was happening because all hell had broken loose really and this was this was actually not their first time writing uh, a song to commemorate you know a, a particular social event like this because as Buffalo Springfield hadn't um, Stills for what it's worth. Was yeah. it Stephen Stills was written for what it's worth? Yeah. Um, and you know that I think was was similarly sort of cranked out in a relatively um, uh, quickly. And you know I guess that responded to what the, but that was I mean that wasn't that wasn't it's often used as a uh, an anti-war no it's, it's, song. it's an iconic song of the time but it's it's a sort of more amorphous questioning. But it it of, was a response to the Sunset Strip curfew riots in November of '66, oh yeah. which were counterculture clashes, but not specific to you know a war that hadn't started yet. Yeah, so. I mean, they had the the, the equivalent um, sort of uh, come one come all message that something like my generation had, but it was you know it was certainly I mean it was written in response to something, but it didn't have the focus on um, you know a historical. Event. It, it, 
its lyrics and its message didn't reflect uh, in, in, in a specific event as much as it did a sort of, you know, uh, cultural anthem, you know, and a sort of uh, anthem for youth culture. The the interesting thing, um, you know, when you're talking about Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and again, I'll put the emphasis on Young uh, and Stills, but uh, Ohio, part of the reason Ohio... You know, it was, again, it was written, recorded you know, incredibly quickly. One of the reasons that the uh, record company really balked at it even more than the message and the fact that Nixon was called out by name was that um, Teach Your Children Well was on the charts and they didn't want to cannibalize uh, their chart position with another song. <laughs> nice. So there you go. I mean, it, it, it always comes back to business, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And so, okay, so at the, the same time, though, like... What, what were the English up to? Well, did did they have anything to protest? Uh, they had a lot of they had a lot to complain <laughs> about, but uh, their, their protest got their protest got hotter and heavier later. So uh, why don't we take a quick break, listen to Ohio, and we'll come back. We'll talk about that. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Uh, today it's uh, it's me and Wyndham, um, and we're talking about protest music. Um, now, uh, right right before the break, Wyndham, I was, I was starting to ask you about um, whether uh, the British um, were interested in protest music or whether they deemed it too impolite. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think you, you sort of said that the 60s were really the, you know, the heyday of, of uh, these sort of large... Um, counterculture movement in the United States that that fed into Vietnam and and really inspired some of the the great uh, protest anthems of of that uh, sort of generation. Um, I think in the nineteen seventies uh, and you know uh, some combination of um, uh, of of you know I think national politics under um, under Thatcher. Uh, but, you know, sort of social politics, post-war social politics in England um, really started to come to a T. Um, and, you know, this this sort of, it, I think, is um, concurrent with the, the dawn of, uh, of punk rock. And um, so I, I wanted to ask you to, to sort of lay out the, um, you know, the lay out the foundation. Things. Yeah, well, exactly. Let me, let me just rewind quick because I think what happened with the, the Brits was, you know, I mean, they, you know, there was definitely... Um, you know, in, in keeping with the, their sort of uh, 
their MO as, as British people. Um, you know, they, they wrote some very funny songs about class and, and, you know, there's people like, uh, Ray Davies that were, you know, social critics, but not, there wasn't the sort of venom and, and, um, you go know, back even further, like Flanders. I mean, yeah, they're good at parody. They're like, let's, yeah. I mean, they're good at satire. Flanders and Swan were writing, you know, goofy, um, it's like the, the tradition of writing comedy, that is actually pretty biting. You know, let, let's take it back to, you know, a different art form and, and literature, but I mean, you know, Evelyn Waugh or somebody like that. Like, it's 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 all over the place, and, and yeah. the British love that shit. Um, right, but so. I think they did have to take, you know, I think they did take their cues from the U.S. when it came to, um, you know, really the specificity of songwriting. You know, I mean, there was, you know, certainly um, you know, some responses, some to you know what was going on in the states. I mean, songs like "Street Fighting Man" by the Rolling Stones, and and you know there were some more obscure uh, groups that were that were singing more you know sp- sort of uh, protest protest anthems about you know uh, their their lot in the world. But it really took a while for uh, the Brits to sort of um, you know become take the gloves off, so to speak, and start writing there because because of the the sort of uh, literacy of the of the songwriters um you know they when they got to it it became it was excellent but it took them a little while because of of the social uh elements of of and the politeness and the barriers uh that they didn't want to break down or didn't necessarily have broken down for them um it took a little while so you know let me just take one step backward and talk a little bit about american music before i get to uh, where the British, where I think the British really come in on this. And, and you know, one of the things that I think w- was really interesting was um, the sort of break, you know, as we said before, there was a sort of, um, you know, there was this damned up, uh, um, you know, sort of uh, anger and feeling uh, from black recording artists who were sort of told to keep it clean and, and, you know, keep the suits on and, and, you know, keep, uh, you know, the, the dance steps that had always been, um, you know, popular in, in Motown music and, and the crossover, um, that happened, you know, that, that allowed for there to be a crossover, um, you know, for black artists to chart on, you know, broader. So just to um, clarify, you're, you're talking about the, the time period when basically, you know, black artists were no longer, um, being, you know, forced to either sound white to get on radio or, um, you know, deliver their songs to uh, white artists who would who would record them instead. Yeah, I mean, no, when it was really, there was, it, it was more open to no, black I'm artists performing. About, I'm talking about Smokey Robinson and, and, and the Miracles and, and the, you know, I mean, did all that stuff, those were hits in the late 60s. I mean, this is not, you know, this is, po- you know, this is, concurrent with civil right, the civil rights movement concurrent you know with um you know the sort of breakthroughs in the civil rights movement uh there were still you know the four tops and and you know the temptations and all these bands were still um very much um sort of uh, you know neat and tidy and clean and cut and and doing all of you know obeying you know abiding by all the rules that that allowed you to cross over to mainstream success it wasn't until you know sort of the beginning of the 70s when a couple of the artists on Motown 
became powerful enough that they said, you know what, fuck this, Barry Gordy. We're going to, you know, we're going to write, there's too much going on in the world for us to keep talking about uh, Sugar Pie Honey Bunch. Um, you know, uh, albeit you know, those are great, the Holland Dozier Holland songs, but, you know, the, uh, you know, the Marvin Gaye's What's Going On uh, was really a breakthrough. Um, Stevie Wonder was going to leave the label if he couldn't do what he wanted to do. Um, you know, he winds up uh, becoming a voice for social justice, not not even a protest song so much as a voice for social justice, um, you know, with things like Living for the City and, and uh, you know, some of his um, great early 70s output. So it really took, I mean, what's going on is a 1971 album. It's not a, um, you know, it's not a 60s record. Uh, it's uh, It took a while for... Um, the barriers to be lifted for those guys, where they felt the ability to to, and the, uh, to be able to take huge what was a, then a huge risk for an artist, and um, you know really put out an album that means something and was you know uh, an overt protest record. That led to some really phenomenal, uh, you know, R&B and soul and rock records in the seventies. I mean things like. You know, Isaac Hayes' Hot Buttered Soul and Shaft and, um, you know, Curtis Mayfield's break from, you know, sort of uh, tidy pop records into, you know, the, the black exploitation fl- albums yeah. that he was doing. And, I mean, there there was a, the floodgates open, and, and thank God, because that's some of the best music that's ever been made. <laughs> There's far too many of you dying You know we've got to find a way To bring some loving here today Father, Father We don't need to escalate You see, war is not the answer For only love Okay, so so far, Wyndham. I mean, it sounds like the the one thing that uh, that everybody has in common here, black, white, English, um, American, is that uh, everybody we've talked about, is, you know, are, are basically male artists up to this point. So, I mean, I, I think you mentioned Joni Baez earlier, but um, you know, where did where did women figure into this? It's uh, yeah, it was fairly male dominated, I guess, um, when I think about it. But you know, this is also. Um, you know, in the and, and the seventies were a weird time. I mean, the early seventies were still very, um, you know, sort of GI Bill, uh, World War Two uh, dad kind of 
an era and you know what what you know set everybody free you know was the the sort of hell raising the late 60s and and then the 70s you know women really took charge of of things and there was a lot of push for an equal rights amendment a constitutional amendment um that would grant women equal rights which is i mean it, it the the whole thing just sounds so it feels like this should have been 100 years ago not in my lifetime, but I do remember it, and it's kind of scary that it was uh, so unevolved at such a late date. But, you know, I mean, we're talking about uh, the civil rights movement in the 60s, uh, which I was not alive for, but then, the, you know, I mean, all of this stuff is happening perilously close uh, historically to now, uh, in, in the sense that, I mean, it should be wildly (laughs) embarrassing for, I was, I was about to say, thank God they got rid of the patriarchy in the seventies. Yeah, no sure. Um, I mean, yeah, so I guess, but, but there was, I mean, to your, to your point, um, on a more serious note, you know, people were, uh, really agitating against, um, you know, against uh, a sort of male-dominated society for the first yeah. time. Is that right? Yeah, and there was a lot of, I mean, like, through music, obviously. Yeah, I mean, there were some, you know, really good uh, female-fronted rock bands, but a lot of it came through the sort of singer-songwriter movement, and, you know, people like, I mean, Helen Reddy's I Am Woman was an anthem, um, uh, hardly an anthemic song, but it's an anthemic sentiment. Um, uh, it sounds like pretty, you know, soft rock now, but, you know, Janice Ian at 17, Carly Simon's records, Joni Mitchell's records, you know, they all had a real um, strong message of, you know, female empowerment, uh, which was uh, here on two unheard of. So, you know, these are, these are landmark um, watershed moments in the, in the, you know, again, it's crazy, but then you also have, again, from the uh, soul side of things, I mean, you've got Aretha, um, you have, you know, disco that crops up in the, in the mid seventies, which, um, you know, again, was a sort of unleashing of, of, uh, you know, female sexuality, um, that didn't obviously exist until 1976. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, I don't know the whole, you know, the whole thing, it, people think that they live in a, a, a tumultuous time now and that it, it's never been like this before, but if you lived in the late sixties and then it, like in my case, you, you were a kid in the late seventies. I mean, it, it felt pretty tumultuous then too. It felt like the world was falling apart, uh, then as well. And, and, you know, there was a lot of, thank God there was a lot of music and, and art to sort of both push that envelope and also to, uh, provide you know, to a document, valve. Yeah. To document the time. Cause, uh, you know, there was a, I mean, <clears throat> and, and again, this is coming back, looping back and I'm sorry, I'm not doing a terrifically good job of linear storytelling tonight, but, um, forgive me, I'm sick. Uh, <clears throat> you know, around the same time that we're talking about disco hitting the, hitting the, uh, picture punk hits as well. And, um, you know, punk enters the picture and that's just the, exactly that. It's a fucking steam valve. It's a release valve. It's well, we've always, it we've, anger. We've always talked about the, the sort of, um, simultaneous uh you know during during periods of relative um you know social tension and and in particular i I know you and i have talked about this a lot in the last year um because it does feel that there you know uh that really since the the election um there has just been uh, a sort of you know uh 
higher volume um, frustration uh, oh, uh, yeah. on all, I mean, literally, you know, in, in, in every possible, you know, camp. And um, I, I think that there are sort of two reactions to that um, that are that are really interesting to me. And one is, you know, you, you face it squ- very squarely um, and, and sort of head on and, and uh, you know, you write political music. Um, and, you know, alternatively, there's the there's the school of thought that it's like, look, you know, some people need a break. Um, and, you know, sometimes you get some of the most sort of carefree, um, you know, music uh, or art of all kinds, you know, um, that, that sort of inspired during these moments because it's just, it, you just need a, a little bit of an escape. Um, and disco certainly feels like a little bit of an escape that lasted 10 years. Yeah, it was. It was a very, actually. You don't. You think Six. it lasted ten years? It lasted. No, no. I remember. Five, I remember yeah. from the uh, from from the disco episode. It didn't. But I mean, um, yeah. I mean, you can't roller skate and do cocaine for ten whole years. Um, but uh, <laughs> but you can try. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Um, Boogie, but, Nights, Boogie Nights taught us anything. The the, the interesting thing is, I think um, you know. Right now, I'm looking at. Uh, um, you know, it's just something I've noticed, um, you know, very sort of, um, uh, uh, just, you know, through what I'm, you know, what I'm watching in television and, and films and things. And I'm, I'm seeing a lot of the sort of, I think what it is, is the industry right now. Um, and again, the industry was at a step back then, which is why it was so important for artists to push the envelope rather than, you know, and I think, again, the industry uh, right now sees, um, you know, Trump get elected, there being a big populist flat, you know, sort of backlash. Anecdotally, I'm watching TV and I'm seeing ads over the weekend for uh, a movie about the two guys that, that took out the, the French um, guy, you know, the French terrorist on the train. I'm seeing one for uh, 12 have followed or whatever the, the you know, the sort of oh, jingoistic yeah. military movie is at the moment. And everything I see on TV is, is you know, uh, first responders and military and police procedurals where, you know, it's law and order, tough guy stuff. And, um, you know, that's that's the industry responding to what they think this moment is, which is, you know, a sort of reversal um, in in uh, the sort of American group thought um, to to sort of you know, try to accommodate the the jingoism and the and the you know chest thumping that worked over the past you know eighteen months. I have to say I'm looking for uh, and what we're getting ahead of ourselves here again. But I'm looking forward to in the next segment you talking and us talking about um, you know where we think uh, the alternative to that uh, prescriptive. Um, American, America first, you know, sort of MAGA suck up shit is going to be. But uh, in the spirit of that, I'm going to go back again, my nonlinear way, and you know, talk about how punk rock kind of erupted onto the scene, and and how the outgrowing of the outcropping of that really became the def- to me the definitive British protest music, which was, um, you know, punk hit. It was an attitude. It was a um, it was brace, abrasive. It, it, you know, chucked everything that you ever knew about music and attitude and everything to the, you know, into the tumster. And the outgrowth of that was a group of, I think, very mindful, 
people who embodied the punk ethos and the punk attitude, but were the sort of more literate, scholarly types of songwriters. I'm talking, obviously, about Elvis Costello, uh, Grant Parker. Um, Nick Lowe. Nick Lowe, but also, you know, bands like The Specials with Ghost Town, bands like The English Beat, who, you know, I mean, were a very poppy band, but, you know, had a song like Stand Down Margaret, which is, you can't really get a whole hell of a lot more um, forthright than that in your uh, call to arms politically. Um, you know, there, this was an extremely desperate, oh, ugly time. I think time fucked for, up Ronnie actually, uh, pretty much, uh, might be, might be slightly, like just get the, you know, by, by a hair. Um, yeah, might, no, might but then, again, hair. didn't I, did I just say literate and scholarly? I think, uh, oh, I think, yeah, well, um, <laughs> you know, I think the jam with Eaton Rifles, I don't know if you're, uh, you're familiar with that song, but I mean, Eaton Rifles is a great song about what it was, was a, a, a worker's march, uh, through Slough. And, um, you know, the Etonian uh, sort of, uh, what, are, what, what do you call, I mean, you went to school over there. What do you call the, the sort of, you know. Small, the Rifle Corps. The Rifle Corps. So, um, you know, this is about a workers protest that goes walking through the, uh, the streets of uh, Slough through the town. And, you know, the sort of Eaton Rifle Corps comes out and laughs at them. And so Eaton Rifles is about, you know, it's a, it's a big fuck you to the you know, sort of upper class, you know, continuing to beat the shit out of the lower classes in England. And there was a yeah, lot the of that snooty uh, attachment to defending the empire. And, you know, I, I think to put this in, in the sort of social political context, I mean, again, it's like look, England had suffered like blow after blow after blow. Um, and, you know, literally, I, look, for, yeah, you they came out of two world wars in tatters, um, you know, having, um, won and, and, you know, thankfully defended, uh, defended freedom effectively, um, for, for Europe. But, uh, but at the same time, you know, just absolutely crushed. I mean, the destruction, um, and, and, you know, the economic losses were, were absolutely brutal. Um, and, you know, then in the, subsequent, what, 15 years, you really sort of started to see the dissolution of empire. Um, and so, you know, all of these assets that, that previously the country had relied upon um, for, you know, for, for growth and wealth, yeah, were, were really sort of dissolving into thin air um, or, for that matter, right, Canada. Yeah. Yeah, rightfully claiming independence. Um, uh, but, you know, the, this also had, like, an incredible fatigue, I think, on um, on the sort of traditional English uh, patriotism. And, you know, it was, it's a difficult thing to, I, I think, for, for a generation of people to um, to watch, uh, you know, and, and even if it is the, the right trajectory for, for history, I mean, we can say in retrospect, you know, that, that obviously it was, it was, um, you know, imperialism was, uh, was around way too long. It doesn't change the fact that you had a generation of people who were basically, you know, disgruntled and, and sort of upset and not feeling exactly too enthusiastic about the Union Jack. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you, you know, and chief among them was, a. uh, um, you know, Liver Pudlian named uh, Declan McManus, Elvis Costello, who, you know, wrote things, songs like Oliver's Army about, uh, you know, and the, I mean, his record was called Imperial Bedroom in 83, I believe. Um, you know, songs like Shipbuilding about the Falkland War. Um, you know, he's very cynical about... about <laughs> Which actually, by the way, is the sum total of what I know about the Falkland War. Yeah. <laughs> Other than the fact that I think Prince Charles flew a helicopter or something. 
I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, something like that. I believe it was Prince Edward, but um uh yeah, no, there wasn't there wasn't much to know, but it was um, you know, it was a rally, it was you know, as as sort of uh minute as it seemed and as as sort of um, you know, I mean, it, declaring war on a on a on a territory where the sheep outnumbered the people by a significant margin. Um, you know, there was still a desire to sort of rally uh, British nationalism, and it, it kind of fell flat. And it was, you know, I think um, Margaret Thatcher um, was a very <laughs> significant target. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a the hell of a lot of anger built up. Like I said, the, the punk rock thing kind of exploded. I've called it a supernova before. Um, you know, it sort of appeared and then disappeared. Um, but what remained from it, and, you know, I mean, the clash being the great legacy uh, from it, from a political, um, you know, uh, from, you know, sort of... Uh, an attitude of defiance persisted and yeah. combined with a more uh, uh, articulate, you know, vision of, of politics and society um, combined for some pretty weighty shit. Yeah. Well, please don't say more articulate while I'm stumbling through that many words. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's true. And, um, you know, uh, and then just one last piece of the British uh, puzzle, which I think was interesting, which is, you know, I mean, again, compressed time frames. You're talking about from, you know, The Clash putting out uh, Combat Rock and Rock the Casbah in 1982 to, um, you know, two years later, uh, a whole new era of sort of benevolent protest Bob uh, comes up with Bob Geldof and, and uh, the Band-Aid folks. And do they know it's Christmas? I would love to have seen Joe Strummer in that, um, in that crowd. But, uh, Um, you know, that, that sort of started a more, um, you know, sort of benevolent and, and lighted path towards, um, what you could do with a rock song. Um, do they know it's Christmas and subsequently we are the world, uh, you know, raised an enormous amount of money, uh, for African relief, uh, famine relief and, you know, sort of started a, a, you know, sort of really turned, you know, sort of flipped the script on, on what protest music could be. Um, yeah, there was this crazy surge of like people using their celebrity for, you know, good, good. Um, but also to elevate yeah. their own personal profiles, let's be honest. Um, you know, yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and, but, but, you know, that, that also traveled back across the pond and things like Farm Aid, right? Well, I mean, you had Live Aid, which was a giant success um, and really kind of a risky endeavor, but, um, uh, they did two simultaneous concerts in London and Philadelphia for reasons I still haven't. Why? Can, I I don't know. I believe probably because I don't the last know. the last time they checked, it was still our capital. No, I think I think yeah, that's part of it. You know, they're, 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 they again they weren't exactly uh, getting straight A's in imperialism at that um, <laughs> yeah exactly juncture. But um, well, they hadn't know, they, changed the textbook, so I, it has to be something. Honestly, it has to be something about availability of of the venue because <laughs> it was a weird choice, or maybe they just saw that it was the middle of the you know sort of eastern seaboard and figured it. I don't know. I don't know who organized it. I don't know why they chose Philadelphia. I know Lisa, my stepsister, was there. Um, and uh, um, I, and I'll get to something, but but those were those were big events, and they managed to get 
Um, I can't remember whether it was cable, because cable was pretty much in its infancy, then it was 85, um, or if it was network television. I believe it was on network television, and it was broadcast all day, commercial-free, with pleas for people to, like a telethon, which is pretty amazing. I hate the song, We Are the World. Like, I do too. It's just, I, there's something about, yeah, the, it, was, it didn't produce good music, though. And by the way, We Are the World, it's like, it's pretty damn difficult to, to well, make an argument that that's that. a protest song, you know? Um, yeah, no, it wasn't, but it was, uh, all I'm saying is they, they flipped the script. They, there was a sort of, um, you know, there was, uh, it's, it's not protest music, but it was, it, it definitely, I, I wanted to add it in, in the sense that. It's political music. It was politically um, active music. Uh, people had to give a shit. And, yeah, um, and and then as a result of that, um, it really caused an entire generation of kids growing up in the '80s and '90s to be more cynical than ever. Um, and basically, uh, you know, which I guess is you and me. Um, it's true. We make a better place, just you and me. Yeah, there we uh, go. Anyway, um, enough about that. Well, uh, well, let's take a quick break. And please, um, please know we are the world. Let's uh, let's let's go with a better song. The Midge Er. And uh, Bob Geldof penned, Do They Know It's Christmas? It's Christmas time There's no need to be afraid At Christmas time We let in light And we vanish it Welcome back to the Brother Brother Podcast tonight. It's me and Christian talking about protest music. And uh, Christian, you grew up in the uh, one of the hotbeds of, of 80s protest music. I would say um, punk rock as a whole, you know, despite the fact that it's got an enormous amount of, of uh, vitriol and venom, uh, you know, a lot of it wasn't as political as, as uh, or a lot of scenes weren't as political. But the scene that you grew up approximate, approximate to 
was uh, was the real deal. What? Tell me what you know. Yeah, I mean, I think the the Reagan era spawned, um, you know, a, a fair amount of uh, anger all over the country among um, uh, certain musical communities. I think. Um, but nowhere, I think, was that was that felt more intensely uh, than in Washington, D.C. And I think a big part of that was probably the fact that uh, you're combining two things that teenagers really dislike, which is uh, conservative politics and uh, and their parents who work in the government. Um, so you, you have this sort of uh, you have this like double whammy that caused, um, you know, a, a great variety of um, uh, of, you know, a particularly um, uh, in- intense and very serious, I think, punk bands um, to uh, to sort of explore this this you know fertile um, subject area, and you know I think the there there was I think to to start with it, it was you know a, a lot of Reagan stuff right like you have one of the best examples of a protest song I I always think is Government Issues Hey Ronnie, um, which is uh, a better song frankly than uh, than what was it, DOA's uh, Fucked Up Ronnie? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think Hey Ronnie was actually on the um, Flex Your Head Discord the compilation. Bonzo Goes to Bitburg. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, that Flex Your Head compilation, you may, yeah. you probably had it, um, but it was uh, it was one of those Discord releases. And, you know, I, I think this also has probably the catchiest chorus uh, that involves Ronald Reagan, which is, hey, 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 Ronnie. Um, and, uh, if that didn't get his attention, yeah, thank you. Um, but, you know, beyond that, like, obviously he was an easy subject, right? Um, and, and a sort of easy mark for, for these angry kids. But I mean, I think there were a lot of other subjects that were, you know, simultaneously being explored by these bands. And, um... I, you know, you've you've got uh, like consumerism was was so um, forward in the minds of uh, of you know bands like Minor Threat and Bad Brains who. Um, what was the greatest uh, good era? Yeah. Yeah, exactly, and I mean, my you know, Minor Threat um, is you know uh, wrote "Cashing In," which is uh, a, a great tune. Um, you know, sort of rejecting this uh, this like American tradition of of you know. Yeah, capitalist greed, consumerism, um, and similarly, bad brains. Uh, you know, did don't need it. Um, but you've also got a really interesting, uh, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, collection of songs on the focus on race because, you know, one of the interesting sort of uh, aspects of of eighties uh, punk in DC was the fact that a lot of these bands of, you know, largely suburban um, teenage white kids were, you know, playing at music venues or looking for music venues in D.C. And um, the the result was that you would get these really fucking bizarre um, billings of, like, minor threat playing alongside, um, you know, a, a go-go, uh, go-go band um, and, uh, you know, at the 930 Club. Um, and you had the older uh, Bad Brains um, who were, uh, you know, exploring, you know, reggae and dub, um, right next to, you know, the, uh, sort of ferocious, um, teen idols or, um, marginal man, which was, uh, headed up by Kenny Inouye's kid, um, the Senator Kenny Inouye's kid. So, uh, which I guess is probably the, the single best testament to, you know, why these guys became so political. Um, I don't think most of them could escape it. Um, 
but uh, but you know, I, I think the the DC sort of ethos ultimately spread to um, you know spread around the country, and I mean whether it was through uh, Henry Rollins, you know, um, sort of helming uh, Black Flag, um, or uh, you know the New York scene sort of catching on, and and bands like Reagan Youth um, writing songs like Reagan Youth. <laughs> uh, you know, um, I, I think that this is, you know, it was, it was sort of a, a politics and a seriousness, um, and sort of a, a true believerdom that really, um, started in, uh, in, in, in DC. But I mean, you were actually alive for this shit. What do you make of it? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I wasn't really, I mean, I tertiarily involved, um, or was, a, you know, I certainly was aware of it. I had those records, some of those records, hardcore Punk was, you know, I mean, Jeremy, you know, sort of explained it well when he was younger. He said it was something he thought he should like rather than something that he was truly, you know, head over heels in love with. And I, I felt the same way. I was more uh, from the DC scene. I, I was more of like a Dag Nasty fan. I love the Bad Brains, um, but not for, you know, was I wasn't really listening to any of those punk bands for their sort of politics because I didn't think, uh, I mean, uh, other than the, the DC bands, which were relatively literate, I didn't really... Think I didn't go to hardcore for my for my uh, you know sort of uh, intellectual uh, uh, stimulus. Um, I did, however, uh, love listening to hip hop back then. Um, in the early, you know, sort of simultaneously. I mean, I wasn't uh, you know we're talking late uh, mid to late eighties, so I, I wasn't really um, you know, DC hardcore when DC hardcore was, uh, really in its nascence, I was more on the tail end of it, um, and appreciated some of it, but not as, uh, you know, not in real time. I wasn't at those shows. I wasn't in that scene. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah I mean, I, well, I think hip hop's another, I mean, another area that, that's certainly worth talking about, um, here. And, and, you know, I think the ultimate, uh, the ultimate sort of, uh, you know, illustration of, of the different forms that, that political or protest hip hop can, can take is, is the sort of distinction between a group like Public Enemy and NWA who are effectively coming up, you know, around the same time. Um, different and, ages certainly, but yeah. Yeah. But the, the point, be, you know, they were, they were popular simultaneously. Um, and they reflect, uh, you know, two very, very different approaches, um, to inspiring, uh, you know, political recognition of, of um, you know, uh, of really serious grievances with, with the social order. And I think, you know, on the one hand, you have um, the, the sort of bard uh, in, in Chuck D, um, who, you know, is just in, incredibly, um, uh, you know, I, I guess transparently political. Um, you yeah. know, he was, like, it takes a nation of millions um uh, no, their whole MO informing was political. I mean, that was yeah. the thing about this band. It was not. There was there was never. A, I mean, they they certainly had some. Um, even their funny moments. I mean, even the the sort of clowny flavor flav moments were political. I mean, nine one one is a joke. Is a song about uh, you know first responders not responding to to you know calls in quote unquote bad neighborhoods. I mean, that's that's not a you know that's not a fake. Um, you know, that's not something they dreamt up uh, in order. And, and then to have it delivered by, to, by Flava Flav in such a, you know, sort of a funny, um, you know, silly way, you know, really, I think allowed the message to really resonate a lot more with people because, um, you know, Chuck D was 
hardcore as hell, and he was he was great. Yeah. He had a great delivery, he had a great voice. He was a great writer. Um, still, I think probably you know, <laughs> he was my maybe, favorite. Maybe not the most palatable for every audience if it were just him. Um, yeah. I mean, that guy is like straight to the fucking max, and like he he, there's no joking um, in in his uh, uh, in his you know sort of arsenal of um, of rhymes and material. But then, I, just to just to uh, complete the thought, you know, of of, of Public Enemy versus um, NWA, and you know, obviously there wasn't a, a rivalry really between these two um, uh, that was you know sort of clearly laid out. But I mean, I, I think NWA's version of this was to um, to describe uh, you know what what life is is really you know is, is really like um and and how violent it is and um you know with songs like fuck the police which well, I fuck mean, the frankly, police is a protest song that's about as much of a protest song as you can get yeah yeah um you know and of course it was uh, hugely controversial and actually um resulted you know, in them having an FBI investigation exactly um, which is literally the best thing you could possibly do um to promote your single mm-hmm <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I would investigate you. I mean, it was just such different. They were such different approaches. I mean, PE was was all about organization, information, um, education, empowerment. Uh, it, yeah, and and you know everything they did was was so. Uh, I wouldn't say scripted because that's strategic. That, it was so strategic. Exactly. Good. Good. And and I think NWA by by contrast was you it was know just. It, it, it was, was a it was venting <laughs> frustration and anger and like these very very real grievances and it was saying look you know this this is a fucked up situation and i'm going to bring it to your doorstep if you're not going to come to mine yeah um and that's exactly what happened um, it was and, uh, yeah. it both sounded so revolutionary at the time so uh, yeah it's, it's just so ahead of their time I, like it's it really is it's i still marvel at it um I mean, I would just say, you know, I went to, I remember going to see Public Enemy on New Year's Eve in 1988, and, you know, the the whole, you know, uh, sort of drilling with the, uh, you know, um, the, you know, the, the drill steps, the sort of paramilitary moves that the S1W uh, did, and, and uh, you know, they were holding what, lo- you know, obviously were fake guns, but they looked like real guns. I mean, it wasn't like, they weren't toy guns. They were, you know, they looked like they were holding assault rifles on stage, and, and um, you know, that was pretty insane and very intense, very theatrical in retrospect, but at the time it felt very immediate and very uh, revolutionary. Um, NWA, on the other hand, was you know, uh, was just talking about, they, they, they were talking about things in a, in a way that just had never been, it had never been done before. And frankly, I wouldn't have been at an NWA show on New Year's at, in 1988. It, no, um, I don't know. think you would have. Yeah. <laughs> they were, you know, it was, there was, you know, we we're still talking about a time, you know, when there was enough mystery around, uh, artists and bands and things that you could build a mythology um, and, uh, okay, but know, with and, absolutely no mystery around NWA and knowing in retrospect exactly what they were in 1988, I'm still not sure I would have gone to one of their concerts no, at that I point, you know? Um, it's like, I think it was, you know, they weren't, there, there wasn't a, there was no message of, of like reconciliation, no. um, uh, between, you know, races or unity. I mean, it was like, it was, it was hostile. Pure vitriol. Yeah. yeah. And, in a, yeah. and in a way that I think, you know, did ultimately, um, uh, cause people to take notice in, in a positive way. Um, 
So yeah, it was intellect versus raw emotion. It was great. I mean, not that uh, NWA is terribly intellectual. They're they're incredibly intellectual. Um, you know, they're yeah. Not that Chuck D isn't writers. emotional, <laughs> but it's um, you know, it was that sort of and and again, you know, two two formulations was of a, a was a university band of guys that were in their thirties and NWA was a bunch of teenagers. Um, you know that had you know were fresh out of high school and it was uh, you know that that it's the um, it, it, it's a really interesting contrast in styles. I'll leave it at that. But you know, when I uh, talk about yeah, it, let's um, let's. I think uh, we'll take a quick break and then we can come back and um, you know do what are you listening to and uh, add a couple songs to the playlist. <laughs> back to the brother brother podcast uh tonight it's christian and i talking about protest music and just to quickly before we get to what are you listening to in the top um 2019 10, 10 songs of all time i wanted to ask you what you know what do you think's on the uh radar right now that that are you know people who are really speaking their mind? I mean, obviously it's a it's a tenuous time and, and people are angry and and um you know, um, you need only look at something like Facebook to find out that uh, everyone is at odds. But, uh, you know, who, who's coming out with the protest songs now? Not just the anger songs, but the protest songs. Well, you know, I think the um, best sort of illustration of this, actually, is, is probably um, the uh, project that was sort of, I guess, launched initially um, in the run-up to uh, uh, inauguration, um, and sort of in- inspired by, um, or uh, Dave Eggers, uh, the author. Um, it, initially, you know, it, it was uh, 30 days, 30 songs. And um, this was a, a featured sort of contributions from a bunch of high-profile musicians um, protesting Donald Trump. And, you know, they were um, 
both sort of general in terms of their uh, advocacy for social justice, and then some of them were like, just like really blunt and straightforward, like, um, you know, Donald Trump makes me want to smoke crack. Uh, and locker room talk, um, you know, so I think that, um, th- this has since interestingly been, been expanded actually to a thousand songs for a thousand days. Um, and, uh, you know, you can check out these, uh, these are actually playlists on Spotify. Um, but, uh, but you've got, you know, artists who are writing original stuff for, for this playlist, um, and some who are, you know, releasing um, rare live versions such as R.E.M. Uh, releasing or re-releasing It's the End of the World as We Know It. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but it really is uh, a, a sort of um, a, a project that's taken on a life of its own, I guess. So, um, you know, I, I think that these are certainly, uh, there's, look, enough, is, enough ink has been spilled um, about, you know, the, the question of sort of whether punk rock is, is going to be reinvigorated by, um, by Donald yeah, Trump's, yeah. Uh, existence. And, you know, I, I think, um, the answer is I, from my perspective, I see it all over the place, but I, I, I don't think it needs to be a sort of grandiose, um, statement or, a, or, a, or a contrived statement. I mean, I think it's just, you know, real political sentiment that backs, um, a lot of the songwriting that I'm, that I see. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I think in some respects that's pretty exciting. Um, but you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's something that I think is, is sort of ever present at all times. Um, you know, there, there's always, uh, uh, it, it just, this is, this is a particularly, let's say target rich environment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. I was just going to throw out a couple of, you know, good protest bands now and, uh, just name check them, not to, not to uh, linger around too long. But you know, bands like Downtown Boys and Priests, and you know, um, you know, bands like or you know, artists like MIA, who's always been had a very you know, sort of politically forward. Yeah, um, just has anybody listened to what the fuck Kendrick Lamar has been saying in the last five yeah. years? Like that guy is like serious. I mean, he you know he is really pushing um, uh, a sort of uh, an incredibly beautifully articulated. Um, you know, version of uh, uh, version of events. So, um, you yeah. know, I think th- there's look, future th- senator chance the rapper. And yeah, exactly. Um, that's a great call. Thank you. I like that. Yeah, I think I think you're onto something there. Me too. Anyway, um, well, that's that's our that's gonna wrap it up for protest. But uh, what are you listening to these days, Christian? Also, oh, actually, just saw um, a ghost story, uh, which is David Lowry's. Um, uh, 2017 film, um, which uh, I, I think is you know it's been pretty well received critically, um, and really a sort of a, a, a beautiful um, story about uh, the passage of time, and and in particular I think uh, grief, and you know it's it's Casey Affleck and, and Rooney Mara um, co-star, although you wouldn't know it because Casey Affleck actually wears a white bed sheet on him uh, the entire I movie. See that. I haven't seen it. Um, yeah, it really is, uh, but it is, it's a great little movie, um, and coming in at, you know, all of 90 minutes, but it's, uh, you are, um, very little dialogue, uh, but, but a really sort of, you know, I thought pretty elegant, uh, piece of visual storytelling, so. Cool. How about you? Um, I'm going to recommend a movie as well. It's funny that we both are recommending movies this week, but, um, you know, after, like I said, I wasn't crazy about last year's, uh, slate of, of films and and I I wound up seeing Okja the other day um, 
Bong Joon-ho's uh, movie, and he's the director that brought us Snowpiercer. And, I'd um, like to protest your pronunciation of uh, Korean names. Yeah, I'm sure um, it's all <laughs> what, How do you pronounce that? You would know. Oh, no, I, was, I actually haven't seen it on... Uh, I, let me look it up here. What's B-O-N, his name? B-O-N-G-J-O-O-N-H-O. Oh, yeah, that's Bong Joon-ho. All right. Oh, well. thank you. Well, then, thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Okja, uh, very, very, you know, sort of out there, absurdist movie about, um, you know, uh, essentially a protest against, um, you know, the uh, corporate, you know, agro business, and um, it's a it's a heartwarming story of a of a girl on a mountaintop in in, in Korea, and her pet super pig, uh, who uh, an American corporation has. Um, bestowed upon her and now wants to take back uh, <laughs> to so it is uh, as nuts as it sounds and it is uh, really good really funny um, just a, a, a great setup and, and you know where we're talking about protest music it's it's interesting to see a satire these days because you don't see a ton of them and this this is a uh, both a, a very funny physical comedy a heartwarming story and um you know, sort of a political satire of sorts. So um, check it out. I, I couldn't recommend it more highly, and it's already streaming on Netflix. It was uh, Netflix, I believe, um, production. So Yeah, and no, and this Bong Joon-ho was also, he, he did um, Snowpiercer. Uh, Snow okay. Yeah, both of which were, were you know, really uh, well, you know, well-regarded uh, flicks. So I am woefully ignorant of, of Korean cinema at the moment, but this sounds like, um, you know, it's Honestly, a pretty, it's pretty a, great piece of satire. It's about 85% in English, too. So, oh, really? Um, you know, it's oh, Jake well. Gyllenhaal, Tilda Swinton, um, and uh, um, it's it, it very, very, very worth your time, trust me. Excellent. Yeah, so you want to pop a couple songs on and then go watch uh, some college football? Yeah, um, why don't you go ahead? All right. Um, I was going to put a protest song on, and then I I was uh, listening to uh, The Killers, all these things that I've done today, and I decided I was going to throw that on. That's my protest against the the need for protest right now. That's a a great choice. I, I certainly do like that song. Thank you. And you? Well, uh, I'm thinking It's amazing how this always sounds like a pop quiz to you, as if we haven't done this in the first 75 That I'm episodes. unaware <laughs> that this is going to be the way we end this episode, yeah. yeah. Um, Mr. Well, Lewis? <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and then I stall, um, like I'm doing right now. Uh, and part of it is that I can never fucking remember what's already on the playlist. So yeah, um, is, is Paper Planes by MIA on there? I don't believe it is. I was about um, to do it. All right. Well, then I'm I'm gonna pick a different song by MIA, even though it's not, um, because it's it's a little bit more of a protest song, and that's twenty dollar. Nice. All yeah, right. I love that tune. We'll throw it on there, and uh, we will talk very soon. Thanks for joining me, and uh, woohoo! Bring it up. All right. Moment. Remember all right, to fight the power, Wyndham. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother 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 podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.